Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. This week, we'll be talking about Bauer Media's Pacific buyout faces a hurdle. Seven's prime merger is blocked. The Tasmanian government appoints 28 agencies. And radio ends the year with yet more changes. So Bauer's $40 million purchase of Seven's magazine arm, Pacific Magazines, stumbled this week as the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission voiced concerns over the impact of the merger. Namely, the watchdog and its chair, Rod Sims, said the fact that Woman's Day and rival New Idea and Take Five and rival That's Life would be combined into the same company would significantly reduce competition in the market. Hannah, I imagine that Bauer and Seven weren't thrilled with this news at the tail end of the decade. How have they responded to this setback? No, they weren't. <laughs> they weren't particularly thrilled. Um, it's interesting. So Bauer has said that they were actually very surprised that the ACCC decided to voice its concerns. Um, but they have said that they still expect the merger to be completed by early 2020. So they're not expecting this will actually have any implication on it. And seven CEO James Warburton said that the ACCC wasn't considering the wider implications of the merger that it was being too narrow-minded in the way it kind of selected those key titles and said oh but because of these because of these it won't work so I think he said if you look at a wider view neither of these businesses can work alone they need each other to work just because of what's happening in the market at the moment so therefore merging them will create opportunity more than it will get rid of things. The ACCC is right though in that that's life and take five, have incredibly similar approaches to content, incredibly similar business models. You know, they've got those outrageous real life stories that nobody else gets. The way that they write them is, well, I can't say unique because they both do it and they both really rely on, you know, the, the puzzles and the, and the competition that are within them. I can't imagine that if Bauer and PacMags came together, they would keep those two puzzle real life titles or that they would keep the sheer amount of celebrity trash rags that they have. You know, there's Woman's Day, there's New Idea, there's NW. It's Who, too, too many competing for a limited number of eyeballs at the supermarkets for that impulse buy. Too many, you know, people aren't going to subscribe to all of those. It's splitting Unless the advertising. <laughs> yes. And look. my Nana buys all four every week and wow. has done for decades. And every time she, every time I go there, she's just got, you know, the archive of like months and months worth of, of, of all these magazines. And I'm like, Nana, they are the exact same thing. Why are you buying all I really of them? Feel like so I Nana feel like I could be best friends. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's not a very sustainable business model you shouldn't base your business model off of my nana (laughs) like uh, no I'm not saying that it's it's more the the age thing you know yeah yeah they're they're struggling to get young eyeballs and and young people purchasing those magazines so I'm just not sure how Bauer or PacMags could disagree with the ACCC's observations that these mags are in direct competition and would be on the chopping block. And I think what's interesting here as well is if you look at um, Rod Sims' comments, he says, the key Bauer and Pacific Magazine's titles remain profitable and in some cases average more than 1 million readers per issue. If Bauer bought Pacific Magazine's, Bauer would remove its closest competitor in certain segments. Our preliminary view is that this would allow Bauer to reduce the effort put into content production and the range of content or to increase prices. So the point he's kind of making there is things aren't as dire as maybe Seven and Bauer are saying that they are. If Seven and Bauer are saying, look, these two companies can't possibly exist unless they merge, he's saying, well, that's not necessarily the case because your biggest titles are still profitable. You're still pulling in a decent number of readers. There was also a really interesting point that if we merge these two or if these two companies are allowed to merge, the content acquisition needs would fall and therefore the monopoly on photographs the monopoly on articles the use of freelancers and stuff like that there'd be way more 
way less options out there and they'd be able to command basically whatever they want. Because if you're a freelancer, these are going to be some of your biggest clients, I would imagine. So without that competition there, you're not going to be able to say, oh, well, you know, this is how much I'm getting at Women's Day. I can get more at New Idea. Suddenly you're getting a X number from both and that's your only option. Yeah. Another thing that James Warburton said when he responded, which I thought was interesting was, uh, and I quote, the transaction represents an opportunity to provide a stronger base for these titles to compete into the future against digital platforms. And to me, I'm just like, is that what we're talking about here? Like, are we, do we think that the merger means that magazines can compete against the digital platforms at all? Like to me, they're just in such different phases. And that struck me as strange because I was just like, how like how are they how are they going to be competing against the likes of Facebook and Google and well, other I'm big just, platforms? I'm just not sure that a media CEO can make a statement without mentioning the digital platforms. <laughs> like I think it's just anytime, the <laughs> anytime they're complaining about anything or talking about the challenges they face, it's just like oh, got to mention the digital platforms. Mm, it's kind of like when you've done something bad, but your sibling has done something worse. So you're like, yes, I knocked that over, but go over there and look and see what she's done. Like it feels like it's always diverting attention yeah, away. But, yeah, but, you know, as my mother taught me, that's no way to live. So <laughs> I remember when I was getting in trouble one time when I was 14 or 15. I can't, I'd done something terrible, like probably terrible, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> oh, that sounds juicy. And I <laughs> shouted at her, you know, I could be out there getting pregnant and on drugs. Do you know how lucky you are that I'm not pregnant and I'm not on drugs? You're so lucky to have me. How dare you get me in trouble? And her response was like, basically, all right, go and do that. See how that goes for you. But also the fact that you could be doing worse things doesn't justify the terrible thing that you've done here because otherwise, you know, you could just keep going down the road of, well, I didn't murder somebody. So, yeah, I think it's, it's funny that they're always citing that the digital platforms like, yeah, well, they're worse and yeah. aren't they terrible? And they do that all, all the time. You know, they can't go one moment without mentioning Facebook and Google or, or implying something about them. I think my concern lay more with uh, some of the comments that came out of Bauer and some of the information that was passed around from Bauer. And a lot of it, this is kind of me reading between the lines, so perhaps this wasn't what they were trying to infer, but they basically said, look, magazines have only got so long left. Once they're gone, we're going to need the strongest digital platforms we have because otherwise these brands won't exist. And A, I would say that's a tad rich coming from Bow, which anybody in this industry will tell you their digital entry and ongoing digital platforms are a little bit dire. But also it seems like if you're trying to appeal to the ACCC under the basis that, look, it's a dying industry anyway, we're just doing the best with what we have. And the ACCC are coming back saying, well, no, some of your titles are really profitable. So I don't really see the issue here. That just seems like maybe that's not the right argument to make. It's interesting as well. James Warburton, the CEO of Seven, has said that the ACCC's concerns are misplaced because the magazine market as a whole only represents 2% of total advertising spend in Australia. That's a really similar argument that the outdoor companies put together when O-Media and APN Outdoor wanted to merge, interestingly, when James Warburton was at the helm of APN Outdoor. The ACCC expressed concerns and ultimately scuppered that deal, saying, you know, they're the two biggest outdoor advertising companies in the country – They'll command too much power. There'll be effectively a monopoly in a lot of cities and they'll be able to overcharge and do deals that perhaps aren't favourable to brands and marketers. The outdoor companies, Brendan Cook, who's CEO of O-Media and APN Outdoor with James Warburton, again, used that same argument. You know, we're such a small percentage of the pie. They cited the digital platforms as they always need to do, but it didn't work. You know, the ACCC just felt like, nup, it's not, it's not going to work, but then the ACCC did allow O-Media to buy AdShell because it was effectively billboard company buying street furniture company and then JC Deco to buy APN Outdoor, which was the reverse, street furniture company buying outdoor company. So there are ways around it, but I think in this instance, Bauer and PacMags are so similar. They do have these crossovers of titles that you just can't, you can't pretend one's street furniture and one's billboards. You know, they're both street furniture. They're both (laughs) celebrity mags. They're both puzzle mags. I don't think that they can construct an argument to convince 
Rod Sims otherwise, I think they might just have to try and rely on that really, really, really small percentage mm. argument. Uh, but I think they still seem to be confident it's going to go through. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think the clearest sign here is that there was no point where Bauer and Pacific thought this was going to get blocked. We haven't been able to get any of this confirmed, but all you need to do is pick up a paper on the weekend and you'll see a number of very large names in the magazine industry who are reportedly out of the job, who have reportedly changed jobs, who have you know moved from one place to another. I think, at least from Pacific's point of view, this deal was as good as done and they were already making moves. You know, Gerard's already moved into his role as... Well, I was going to ask that. Actually, yeah. so Gerard Roberts, who's the CEO of Pacific Magazines, was recently appointed Chief Digital Officer of Seven West Media. What happens if they can't offload well, exactly. PacMag? Does PacMags just not have a CEO anymore? Like that's very much what I feel. I feel like they weren't expecting this. I feel like they were just thinking with such a small percentage of the market, the ACCC has got bigger fish to fry. They're going to let this pass through, and then now they've kind of been hit by this. And I wouldn't be surprised if at least a little bit they must be nervous. Well, I think the ACCC are inviting submissions for the next couple of months. Hannah, you used to work at Bauer. Are you going to submit something? (laughs) Yeah, I'll just slip in my submission. (laughs) Um, I think perhaps what's the most telling of Bauer is that I worked there less than five years ago and not a single person I know at that time still works there. Um, Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the final decision is meant to come down from the ACCC in April. So I guess we will know by then. Up next... More merger dramas with Seven's merger with Prime blocked by shareholders. So there's been another blow to James Warburton's merger acquisition and sales plans this week with Seven's plans to merge with Prime Media falling flat and it being blocked by shareholders. We kind of knew this was coming with Bruce Gordon, the Wynn Corporation boss, and Anthony Catalano, the boss of ACM, declaring last week that they would block the merger on the basis that it wasn't the right option for the prime business. Between them, they have just over 25% of the shares, meaning they can block the merger, which would need 75% to pass. Hannah, I believe they voted today and it was close well actually no that's a lie it wasn't close (laughs) I was gonna say Vivian it wasn't close at all so it was blocked by over 53 percent 53.53 we're going to be really specific Mm, 5353 I think what's interesting here is that that means that it wasn't just Bruce and Anthony who blocked this there Mm. were obviously other shareholders however I do think Sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes if you know, and Prime knew well in advance this wasn't going to pass, they'd been posting to the ASX, uh, they've posted a couple of different times saying, look, look, we've read the papers, it's not going to pass. And I do think sometimes shareholders do this if they know things aren't going to get through, they don't necessarily support them. However, what has come out of this, and this is all moving today, um, Seven have acquired 14.9% um, share in Prime Media Group. So what it appears to be happening is they're just going to start snapping up as much as they possibly can until eventually they can get that merger through. I'm not sure that that works though. Like I, no. I totally understand the theory like, all right, well, we'll just keep buying and eventually we'll get it. But the key drivers who are saying no to this and who either want to put together a different deal or drive a better or different outcome for shareholders – Bruce Gordon and Anthony Catalano, together they have more than that 25% block needed. So even if everyone else in that 53.53% who said no to the deal switch sides or or seven snaps up those shares, if Bruce and the cat keep saying no, they're not going to accidentally sell their shares to seven and be like, oh, no, we fell below the 25% threshold. We're so stupid. <laughs> like – they know what they're doing. So I totally get the theory that Seven's going to do what the Cat and Bruce have been doing and just keep slowly buying it up. But is it not too late? Like yeah. the, the 25% is gone. Yeah. So I think they're probably going to keep buying things up and just use this time to try and convince the Cat or Bruce to to change their mind. But what that will look like will be interesting because they're not going to change their mind for nothing. In this instance, they're a bit like – 
you know, a, an independent politician in parliament with a lot of power, you know, the Jackie Lambie of this yeah. deal, if you will, <laughs> where you'll say yes to something, but oh, only if you get something in return. Well, isn't that it? Like, as you said, Bruce Gordon isn't suddenly just going to leave his shares on a bus <laughs> and like have them snapped up by somebody. I love how we're talking about shares as though they're physical. <laughs> I also oh, love the I idea. I dropped them. I love the Bruce idea Bruce Gordon's well. on a bus. On a bus. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. Carrying your shares. Gets off. <laughs> I left oh, my, my bloody, bloody shares <laughs> on the bus. Um, so that's obviously not going to happen. I also think if we've learned anything from uh, these men and their dealings in the media industry, they can be both stubborn and mm-hmm. they can play the long game. So I think if seven think oh we're gonna start snapping up shares real quick here and both of them are gonna be like nah darn outsmarted again and just hand over their shares they've got another thing coming either they know something we don't know about this which is of course very possible or they're just kind of scrambling which what's interesting to me about this is we attended seven's upfronts event a couple of months ago and there are like a decent portion of that presentation was based on the fact they were going to get this prime merger through and it was like we can promise massive reach across the whole of australia which they now can't promise so how what i I well, I, I am currently looking at a photo of James Warburton on stage at the Seven Upfronts with a big thing behind him saying one place. And the basis of that segment of the presentation was one place to reach all of Australia, one phone call, one sales team, one deal to reach metro and regional audiences. A lot of the pitch for Seven in 2020 and their appeal to marketers, their rallying cry to the people in that room was, we're going to make life simpler for you. We're going to make life easier. We're going to cut down the amount of work you have to do, but increase the amount of people you'll reach for that smaller amount of work. That hasn't, you know, he he very much presented it. And I spoke to a number of media agency bosses this year being like, he talked about it like it was a done deal and it was inspiring and it was great. We got excited, but the reality is it hasn't happened yet there's still a long way to go. And if it does fall over or they don't get it through in early 2020, a lot of their pitch was sort of based on something, not a lie, but something that isn't going to come to fruition. And Anthony Catalano is the man who at the last minute of the nine Fairfax deal kicked in a door somewhere (laughs) and said, Hello, I'm here and I want these regional. I'm here with my shares. <laughs> I, I brought my shares. I, I came on the bus, on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and I want some of this tasty deal. So I just don't know why they think either of these men are going to suddenly roll over and hand it over to them. But also, it's important to note that both Bruce and Anthony are entirely relying on all the media laws to change for them to get the outcome they want. So mm. there's literally no incentive for them to back down at this point because nothing's going to happen quickly for them anyway. So unless either of them needs the money, which seems unlikely, <laughs> what's the chances they're going to suddenly sell? Well, and why wouldn't Seven have predicted this before their upfronts? Like... You know, we, we've spoken about Anthony Catalano a lot this year. I mean, we know what he's like. We know what Bruce Gordon's like. As Hannah, you just said, they don't need a quick buck and they don't need a quick deal. They can wait it out. You know, they can come to a face-off and, and just sit and wait. It seems super risky to base next year's strategy around something that when you think about it for more than, you know, 10 seconds, you're like, oh, there's every possibility that this just cannot happen because they aren't they have more than 25% of the shares like it just seems super risky to have presumed and yes they they knew that the vote would not get up today but surely you would have known that a vote wouldn't have gotten up months ago well james has said that nothing is on or off the table for while he's at 7 so he i'm sure is going to be working on cutting a deal or getting getting something done you know we've just spoken about seven trying to sell off pack mags and that hitting a roadblock now this prime mergers hitting a roadblock these are two really big deals that were about james sort of putting his stake in the ground for his time as leader of seven he has shaken up the content he has put forward quite a compelling pitch for seven in 2020 in terms of reaching slightly younger audiences they've got the tokyo 2020 olympics so This, though, was a key part of transforming Seven and making it a more modern media business, particularly when Nine has bought Macquarie Media and Fairfax and all of those associated entities. And Seven sort of wants to catch up and become a modern, multifaceted entertainment company. It does rely on James getting these deals 
through. I have spoken to him. He's confident. That's not surprising though. He's hardly going to call up journalists and be like, oops, I fucked it. You know, he's obviously saying he can still get it done, but I'm sure he would have wanted to end 2019 with both of these things going through rather than the extra work he's going to have to put in to make sure that what he's promised can actually be delivered. Next, the Tasmanian government appoints 28 agencies. And keep listening until the end of the podcast to hear our new sponsored segment, Audio Diaries, from audio specialist agency Eardrum. Ralph Van Dyke, founder of Eardrum, talks to some of Australia's leading CMOs about the growing role audio is playing in their brand development. Today, you'll hear his chat with Dan Bitty, Senior Marketing Manager at Kellogg's. The Tasmanian government's pitch for its account has closed with 28 agencies being appointed across various services. 55 bids were received throughout the process and 33 were from Tasmanian businesses. The account is listed on the government website as being worth $6.45 million. So 28 agencies on a panel certainly seems like a lot for a brand as small, not to say insignificant, but a brand as small as Tasmania. Brittany, what are some of the names on this list? And obviously don't list all 28 because (laughs) we simply don't have the time or the patience. Well, I just refreshed my memory and scrolled through it again. And there's kind of only a couple that stand out as being kind of big ones. Um, You've got Atomic 212 on the media account. Uh, The works are on the list, but a lot of them are kind of really small, well, seemingly, or ones that I haven't heard of at least, names. So as you say, it's interesting that there are so many names on the list and a lot of those names do seem to be kind of quite small operations like there's Timmins Ray Public Relations, uh, Vogish Design, uh, Grey Matters, Digital Inc. Tasmania. So there's 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 a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's important for a government account to have a number of businesses and agencies from that state. You know, they can't just call in big names from the mainland. It would just create backlash. And we've seen that before with some states appointing creative agencies from different states. And it really angers the local market where they say no one could market us better. And how dare you not be giving jobs to locals when you know, that's a huge part of your remit as leaders of this state. So I'm not surprised that we haven't heard of a lot of these agencies. I'm sure in in the Tasmanian scene they are known. I think the issue that people have taken with this is it's not unusual to have a panel. It just means that for various projects you can call on different specialties, call on different businesses, call on different services, but 28 is a lot and a few people have questioned how much work are you actually going to get on a $6.5 million account when 28 of you could be called up? There's a lot of effort that goes into pitching, particularly with government-related accounts because the tender process, it all has to be done a certain way and they can't skip any steps or just say, oh, yeah, you've got it. You know, They have to document everything. It's all very full on. So to then be up with 27 others, I'm not really sure how much of a win it would feel like because you'd think, okay, am I actually going to get any work? Yeah, so 21 of the successful agencies are Tasmanian uh, and 33 of the 55 bids that the government received were from Tasmanian businesses. So 21 out of 33 is a pretty high success Mm, rate. And I think in terms of what you're saying about making sure that you are, you know, putting money into the local economy and making local businesses kind of at the forefront of your local strategy completely makes sense. But as you say, if those local businesses are kind of just getting scraps or tiny bits of projects here and there, you wonder how much of a, a difference it will make for 21 Tasmanian businesses to involve to be involved. Um, it's, it's a high number for sure. There is a scope to do quite a lot of work in that the tender originated from the Department of Premier and Cabinet, but the appointed agencies will also work across the Department of Health, the Department of Police, Fire and Emergency Management, 
the Department of Communities and TAS TAFE. So I'm sure they do do a lot of work and it says that the estimated number of engagements under the panel arrangement is 50 per annum and the contract runs until November 2022. So they could get some work but I still think surely they could have cut down 28 Yeah, and you have to wonder because even then that's, you know, 55 across 28, that's still less than two a year for each agency. And you have to wonder, does especially with that really high number of local agencies that have been appointed, how much of that, not that in any way I'm suggesting that they weren't up to the job at all. I'm sure they're all excellent at what they do, but you have to wonder whether maybe this was somewhat of a token let's show some love to local business, as you said, pump something back into the local economy. But then that only works if they're actually all going to get, you know, the benefit from it. It doesn't work if you're going to say it and then not deliver on it. It also strikes me as being quite a lot of work for the government itself in having to deal with 28 Mm. different businesses and to have a roster that large. How can you build really strong, healthy relationships with 28 separate agencies like even if it was to a year for all of them assuming that they all got kind of an equal bite like I I don't think that that's how it's probably going to play out simply because you know you'll get work and you'll be like yep this was great we'll give the next job to them as well how how do you even begin to figure out how you're going to interact with all of them well there is a number of comments on the article have sort of pointed out that that means 28 contracts, which is a lot of teams of lawyers, a lot of legal bills. Suddenly the costs of this are really blowing out and it becomes really quite inefficient because you have to have somebody liaising with those agencies. You've got to have people within those agencies who are on that account and can work with the government departments. So the costs and admin associated with that and the public servants that would have to be involved in managing all of these agencies is really quite high for a state as small as Tasmania. And if they did want to save a bit of money, I think they probably just could have cut down how many they signed contracts and with. And how do you reward good work either? Like as you were saying, Brittany, you know, if one agency's done really well and you're like, oh, great, you know, then let's give them this next piece of business that would work for them you're then going to be pissing off several other agencies who could be buying for that work. But it also just means you don't then have that opportunity to say, hey, great job, we love the work you did, because you can't then follow it up with, here's some more work. It just, yeah, it doesn't seem like it really benefits anyone involved. Up next, all the changes radio managed to sneak in at the end of 2019. So one thing that everyone across the industry has been saying is that the tail end of 2019 is certainly not slowing down in any way. Nobody's getting any rest or any respite and there's so many news stories, shakeups and changes just sneaking through and everybody seems to be crawling towards the finish line of the decade just wondering when this barrage will stop and it's been no different for radio, we've talked a lot about radio on the podcast the past couple of weeks and every time we do, I think, oh, that will be the last time we have <laughs> to talk about it because everybody makes fun of me for being a radio nerd. But here we are again, Hannah. Goodness, what's happened? Uh, Nine's new radio asset, Macquarie Media, has welcomed back some more Axe staff in the form of Chris Smith. Smith was cut under old CEO Adam Lang in July and replaced in the afternoon spot by Steve Price. But Steve Price is gone as well, Hannah. Correct. So, yeah, in July, um, it kind of very publicly, the relationship between Chris Smith and Macquarie Media broke down. It was all over the Daily Telegraph. There were people campaigning outside the offices to have him allowed back on the air. And he was um, talking about it on air And as he was well. talking about it on air. Certainly. It was breaking down definitely in the public eye. Yeah, it wasn't a private negotiation, <laughs> that's for sure. No. And then, of course, shortly after that, Nine made their bid for Macquarie Media. Adam Lang is out. Um, and so Chris Smith is back. However, he was replaced in the afternoon slot by Steve Price, who had been doing nights and was moved to afternoons. He's coming back into weekends. 
But Steve Price has also left. Um, Steve Price was told he would be moving back from afternoons into nights. He wasn't particularly happy with that. Um, Lashing out on Twitter. He also gave a fairly juicy interview to the Daily Telegraph about it. So he got dropped. And Deb Knight, who has been hosting today for the year, but is now obviously leaving today. She's been moved into the, interestingly enough, into the afternoon slot, not into the night slot. So they were moving Steve Price nights, but Deb's managed to get the afternoon slot, which I thought was maybe a little bit of a... I think I was on a plane somewhere when the Steve Price news came through, or were you on a plane? Somebody was on, I a, was plane. on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> we were definitely flitting about airports and up in, up in the air and all, all sorts of things on the Friday evening that it came through, I think coming back from our Christmas party. And I, I was sort of rushed and a bit frazzled as well. But I think I read a quote from Steve Price saying he wouldn't work yes. nights for anybody under any circumstances. And I was like, um, have you forgotten that you work on the project, which is from 6.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. at night on Channel 10? I just thought that was a bizarre statement. I mean, he's perfectly entitled to say I wouldn't work nights for Macquarie Media, but to say that he wouldn't do it for anybody is just blatantly untrue. It is blatantly <laughs> untrue. I think uh, another interesting a bow to draw here is that Macquarie Media recently brought in Greg Burns as its new head of content. Mm. Greg, of course, comes across from Sky News, where he had been for quite some time. He's brought Chris Smith back across, who, when he left Macquarie Media, went to Sky News. He's also uh, the Money News, Ross Greenwood, who used to host Money News, was dropped. And Brooke Court has come in to replace him. Brooke Court was one of the launch journalists for Sky News Business, and she's I think it was about like 15 or 20 years she'd been with Sky News. She's a long-standing person over there. So she's coming across to host that. So I think some of these shakeups are kind of particularly interesting given Greg Burns' involvement in the whole thing. And then the other thing that happened, uh, Wide World of Sport is getting some programming, which probably shouldn't surprise anybody, I don't think. Yeah, I guess that's nine, putting one of its stronger brands across its various assets. Wide World of Sports has a presence on... Nine's digital assets on television. It's no surprise that they'd want to put that on radio as well. And it's worth noting that Macquarie Sports Radio, which rates so badly, sometimes it would get an actual asterisk in the ratings, which means it can't even be measured. Uh, they've done a sort of content pause while they work out what to do with that element of the Macquarie Media Radio asset. So it's interesting that Macquarie Sports Radio isn't working. It hasn't been able to build up an audience, but maybe Nine's banking on the wide world of sports brand helping them get into sports content on radio in a more sustainable and appealing way. I think uh, another interesting point that came out in all of this, Chris Smith, as well as doing weekends, will also, he's going to continue doing his Sky News programming. He's also going to fill in for Alan Jones while Alan Jones is away. And I think considering all the hubbub that's been around over the last year about who will Alan Jones's successor be, that's a really interesting choice to put Chris Smith straight back into that slot. However, I do also think obviously Ben Ford and one of the names that gets chucked around in that discussion a lot and also friend of nine, it seems unlikely he wouldn't be the next successor now. But it is interesting that not only have they brought Chris Smith back, they've given him a pretty prestigious role. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a case of tail between the legs, a bit like Nine bringing back Carl Stefanovic for today in 2020. It's that, but at least they could admit, oh, we're wrong, let's bring it back, let's try again. An interesting move from Chris Smith as well. You know, he, he went out with such a in such a blaze of glory and then she's like, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll yeah, come back. <laughs> I think less so for him um, when Stephen Beers left 3AW and then came back several weeks later. He did that under nine. So he left under nine, came back under nine. Tom Malone had been appointed inside that time and the quotes certainly made it seem like it was his choice to bring Stephen back. Chris Smith, however, he was obviously having issues with Adam Lang. Adam Lang's not there anymore. Mm. I feel like it's less, you know, he can kind of strut back in there happily now, I reckon. And in other rather amusing radio news, Australian Radio Network's 97.3 FM in Brisbane had recently axed its breakfast show with Bianca Dye and Mike Van Acker not returning and Bob Gallagher to return next year with some as yet unnamed co-hosts and 
in a twist that was somewhat predictable to this saga, that show has now ended the year on top. So it hasn't always been at the top. It's sort of gone up and down and often been beaten by the likes of Nova 106.9. But now they've gone out and they've got an 11.2% audience share, up 1.7 points and at the top of the FM breakfast pile. So it's amusing and I'm not I'm not fully across why that why that show was cut. There's lots of rumors around rifts in the team, but I don't think you can do breakfast radio without there being rumors about rifts in the team. Who's going to be friendly at 5:30 in the morning? Certainly not me. Certainly not you. <laughs> and definitely not not people who, you know, the egos involved in radio are crazy. The effort of them to put their personal lives and their full selves on the line every day. It's it's no surprise that there would be some clashes, but you know, to, to drop a show and then have it go to number one, it must be a bit like, oh, damn it. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of ABC Melbourne a little bit who uh, are just about to change over their breakfast team as well. Sammy Shah and Jacinta Parsons are out there to be replaced by comedian Sammy J. And they weren't doing badly in that area. Obviously, 3AW is always on top in Melbourne, but they weren't doing badly at all. But the quotes that came in from ABC were basically like, yeah, they weren't doing badly, but they were never doing as well as Red was when he was in that role. So as you said, I'm sure there's a lot more to this story than we know, but I do think it's sometimes it's like, yes, maybe they are on top, but we could still do better. Yeah, and I think we probably saw this coming because back in October, ARN made a really public statement about renewing the contracts for Kyle and Jackie O on Sydney's Kiss 106.5. Christian O'Connell, who's the breakfast host down in Melbourne for Gold, and Jonesy and Amanda, who are the breakfast hosts in Sydney for WSFM. And, you know, they they made a big showing that Kyle and Jackie O were going to be with ARN until at least 2024 and that Amanda Keller and Brendan Jonesy-Jones would be sticking around until 2022 and beyond. And I remember asking ARN at the time, you know, what about your other hosts? What about Polly, PJ Harding and Jace Hawkins down at KISS 101.1 in Melbourne? And what about Bianca, Mike and Bob and 97.3 in Brisbane? And they sort of said, oh, well, their contracts, are, you know, are at a different stage of negotiation. Us announcing one thing doesn't automatically mean the other one's not happening. But it wasn't a great sign for that program when – they weren't announced in that big bundle when they said, oh, well, you know, they're not as big a names as Kyle and Jackie O. But again, it was clear that some effort was being made to retain the talent and make sure they were locked in ahead of time for a long time until 2024. Obviously, there were probably already moves to to get a new Brisbane breakfast show, but we're not... We're not yet sure who that is, but one thing I definitely know is that people in Brisbane bloody love Bob Gallagher. I don't, I don't listen to the show. I don't know why he's so appealing, but so many people when this announcement was made were just so relieved that Bob is sticking around. So I'm not sure who, who they'll place into that spot. Maybe maybe we could take it up. Oh, I think so. I'll, I'll move to Brisbane. Um, Wait, just you throwing just down that, the gauntlet here. <laughs> you just said that you at 5.30am is a no. Look, I'll, so do, you, I'll deal with that no, at 5.30. No, I just said I wouldn't be nice and that I'd get a lot of headlines for, you know, for being a diva and being a bitch, but oh, I can take she it. She would get okay. even more headlines if I was doing the show with her because I would leak them to, straight to the Daily Mail every week. She's being a diva. She's a diva again. <laughs> again. Um, I think one thing that I'll be interested to see is whether Bianca pops up or whether both of them pop up somewhere else after this. I think one of Well, ARN has said that Bianca Dye will still have a role with ARN, but they haven't said what it is. And my understanding is she's very keen to stay in Queensland due to her personal life. But it has been hinted to me that perhaps the role won't be necessarily a Queensland role. So I'm not sure what other vacancies there are across the – ARN network, uh, but Mike Van Acker is definitely leaving ARN, so he could pop up mm. anywhere. Because as we also saw this week, when people leave, like Irene Hume, who was the perhaps the most senior person to leave SCA in those 90 redundancies, hopped straight on over to Nova. So she was head of music at SCA and she's gone into a very similar role over at Nova. So one thing's for sure, if people get dropped, especially perhaps if they're breakfast program is sitting in 
top spot, it seems likely they'll end up somewhere else. And the thing with radio is a lot of people have worked together. So Irene, who was at the Hit Network with SCA, is now, as you say, at Nova, but she's worked with Paul Jackson before, who's at Nova. So, you know, they see they see somebody prominent that they've worked with before and they're all just going to keep moving around, but there are less jobs mm. available. So, you know, they've SCA's cut 90 people, ARN's cut a few, Nova cut 15 in the tail end of, of this year. So whilst everybody does shuffle around and play musical chairs, there are definitely, well, as, as the game goes, there are less chairs every single round. <laughs> and that was Vivian Kelly explaining musical chairs. <laughs> well, look, you can't. What a Christmas gift. You can't assume that people know how everything works, okay? Part, part of the, the craft of radio is to inform your audience of what's going is this on. You and this, mounting your <laughs> say, And this has been our official interview for yeah. the breakfast roll in Brisbane. We're, we're open, SEA. Give us a call. Yeah, Duncan Campbell is most welcome to get me on the phone. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that gig. I, I, I come pretty cheap. I'm not nice in the mornings, but hey, I don't think Carl Sanderlands is particularly nice sometimes either. And you know, look at that. He gets headlines and people still bloody love him. Weird. Did Vivian just compare herself to Carl Sainz? I think she did, yeah. but I'm not sure she'd be paid as much as no. <laughs> How much was it he gets per episode that we worked oh, like out? 80, like 80,000 or 8,000 or something. A disgusting amount. So, yeah, look, I'll, I'll take it. I'll <laughs> save, them, save them some money. Coming up next, we have our new sponsored segment, Audio Diaries, created by audio specialists Eardrum. This week, Ralph Van Dyke talks to Dan Bitty, Senior Marketing Manager at Kellogg's, about the resurrection of Nutrigrain's sonic identity, best practices in FMCG audio branding, and the importance of the crunch sound to the Magnum brand. Hello and welcome to Audio Diaries where we explore how Australian brands are becoming more audio-ready. At a time when some commentators are saying we've reached peak screen, with more and more consumers choosing to get their news and their entertainment through their ears. Today's guest is an important marketer working on the most important meal of the day. His name is Dan Bitty, and he's the Senior Marketing Manager at Kellogg's, leading their breakfast portfolio. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> Good, All right, got that. Got My research department has been stellar. I guess the first question I want to ask you is, uh, you know, with audiences growing on, on so many different audio platforms now, there's streaming and smart speakers, podcasting. Does that present Kellogg's with some other opportunities, some new opportunities in your eyes? Yeah, Ralph, I think we've got brands like Nutrigrain, which have a predominantly teen audience. So a platform like Spotify, is a perfect environment for, for the brand to play a role. And that's where audio branding plays such a key piece that if you can build your brand and have assets that sit within your brand that um, are easily recognizable, the effectiveness of them of the, on those yeah. channels is, is, is so powerful. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of, say, the Nutrigrain Iron Man audio logo? And I'll just play a little to remind everyone of what that sound is. Crush it. It's definitely a piece of communications that ultimately became iconic. I probably can't take the credit for this work that's being done at the moment, but the Ehrenberg Bass Institute have a professor, Jenny Romanak, Romanik, mm-hmm. and she did a piece of work around distinctive brand assets. And a lot of brands all over the globe are having a look at this piece of work at the moment, um, particularly across big global brands. Um, and whether it's a visual identifier, a logo, um, and in some cases, an audio identifier. They're these assets that are really intrinsic to the brand that a consumer resonates with and can basically tell that it comes from that place or that brand through that asset. There's not a lot of brands that have big audio identifiers that have been used consistently over time, but Nutrigreen happened to have three that when we spoke to consumers that had engaged with the brand f- through different generations, whether it was 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, yeah. um, there were elements of the brand that really rang true. And we've got three really distinctive assets that are audio identifiers. And one of them is called the Nutrigrain Slam, which you heard in that, in that piece of audio yeah, before. Yeah, massive that, iron oh, door oh, slamming. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So 
we call it the Nutrigrain Slam because it is just, you know, that big iron sound um, clunking on the, on the screen. Mm. And it normally used, uh, used to work as we built text onto the screen and it always landed in ads through the, through the late 80s, early 90s. Yep. And then there's the Nutrigrain Raw, um, which was kind of a, a signal of whoever the main talent on the TVC was overcoming whatever obstacle was in the TVC. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the mechanical music uh, that actually rang behind it was quite unique and different. So you didn't hear that sort of sound consistently across other communications. So it became something that was quite distinctive to the Nutrigrain brand and in particular within something that pulled us apart um, within the categories that we played in. So yeah. when those three came back... Um, we were uh, the team was reviewing um, a lot of the work that had been in market over the last few years and realized that those assets actually weren't being used. So when they were reintegrated back into the piece of communication in early 2018, we saw a significant uptick in terms of recognition, yeah. um, association, um, and it really helped people understand you know, who the brand was and identify where the brand was coming from. Mm, and I think it's actually a trick that isn't used too much um, or used enough, which is the visual transference to use the same soundtrack, the same voice, and obviously the mnemonic in an audio-only setting. It just conjures all those visuals up and you have an extremely um, cost-effective TV campaign in people's heads. There's other brands out there that have been doing this for years. And mm. I mean, you, you think about the old jingle. The jingle is is kind of the the best case in it where brands had the, the sign-off mnemonic. Or- yeah. Kellogg's have had some quite famous jingles in the past. Like there's the, uh, just like a chocolate milkshake, only crunchy. It's just like a chocolate milkshake, only crunchy. The actual line of just like a chocolate milkshake, only crunchy. It was used in text as a sign-off on the front of pack. Still is today. Yeah. It's a sign-off of our communication on our TV. Yeah, but um, you, you can hear it. When you see the words, you, you hear the phrasing of the that tune. <laughs> that is what's playing in your head when you read the words. And it works no differently in communications for brands that if you can have a sound that is associated back with your brand, it becomes something that's distinctive that you don't need to show a visual with it. I think we focus so much on make the logo the same size and in the, in the same shape and then we forget about you know, the five different senses that we've got that we can trigger something in an auditory way. And the one part of the message that's actually cutting through is the audio. Mm. I'm not watching the TV, so therefore I'm not taking out the message that's visually being communicated to me. But what I do hear um, is the message from from the brand if the distinctive asset is strong enough. Yeah, And I think that's where, you know, the, the jingle that plays over a Toyota ad... You know the brand that it's coming from, whether or not you see the visual that's on screen. Do you find that brands have lacked that consistency of late? With any time in any business where there's a new marketing lead or a you know a new director or CMO comes in, you know there has to be change, and with change comes the loss of a lot of these assets that you've built in the minds of consumers. So it can be a challenge when you, like you said, with new new marketers coming in, but also new agencies wanting to make their mark on on a piece of work or a brand. Um, but you know, there's there's still plenty of scope, even with the, the the same consistent assets. It's it's not held some of the biggest brands in the world back from um, doing amazing work. Just maintaining what makes them distinctive and recognisable, but still finding a new way to tell the story. Now, previously, you've worked for Unilever and Diageo and some pretty iconic brands. Are there any notable examples of of from those brands that have benefited from utilising audio assets? Magnum is probably the one that rings most true to yep. me. I worked on on the ice cream portfolio for a long period of time. Mm. Um, but one of the things that was an identifier for, for Magnum was the crack of the chocolate when whoever the talent in the TVC would bite into the Magnum ice cream for the first time. That became so iconic that you could hear that sound and you knew it was the sound of a Magnum cracking and it signaled the memory structures of consumers and knowing that they knew what brand they were talking about or listening to, but it also was a signal of quality of the sound. Let's just have a listen to that sound now. And there's also all the research about the way sound enhances flavour. I mean, you've got Heston Blumenthal playing sea sounds and waves and things whilst serving seafood. But all the research that's been done, uh, Charles Spence um, at Cambridge University did a lot of really interesting studies about uh, how we prefer higher pitch sounds if we want to communicate freshness. And that cracking noise has now been taken into the tubs 
I understand you've got crackable tubs where you squeeze the sides of the uh, the, the little containers and it cracks. You can feel it in your hand as before you rip into it, and then on the top there's a top layer as well. I'm salivating yeah, so as the, I say this. Yes, yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I mean the um, it's great to see that the team still continues to use that such iconic sound with that even as it moves into a different format. Outside of the brands you're working on, what are some of the Australian brands you admire in terms of the way they've used audio as, as part of their um, their arsenal for their marketing? I think Sportsbet's done a really good um, use of having that um, that really consistent voice that sits over over all of their communications. Yeah, um, yeah it's instant, No matter what channel it? that it run on, whether it's on radio or it runs across any of the um, the sports channels or, or mainstream TV, you definitely know it's a sports bet ad when you hear it. Same race multi, yeah, from Sportsbet. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, it's got that very fast recognition. I mean, it allows them to use much shorter ad lengths. Yeah, it's got a really distinctive voice to it as well, like this, um, where a lot of brands fall into the trap is they go get the radio voice and yeah. they put that over the top oh, and God. it becomes quite generic and yeah. nothing that is anything at all distinctive about it, but delivers the message that they need to deliver. Yeah, it's purely making the words audible at that point. They're not making, yeah, right. not bringing the words to life at all. And do you have any advice then for other marketers in terms of being able to use sound and make the most of some of the new opportunities and new platforms, audio platforms that are existing, what advice would you give to other people in your situation? The biggest piece of advice I can give in regards to audio branding is to not leave it to the last thing um, or have it as the last thought. I think that's the trap that most um, um, most marketers who don't think about audio, it, it becomes a, a throwaway thing or something that you need to do at the end of the of developing communications, yeah. whether that's the what track am I going to put over the top of it or what music am I going to use or the sound effects that we're going to be putting over and the sound design and the mix and it's all done at the last stage of creating a, an ad yeah. rather than thinking about it in the early stages of the creative development around how you can use audio to better communicate your, your overall message and that mm. may be you know, using a distinctive voice or using a, a particular type of music or, you know, popular music, um, for instance. If you're working on a brand that's been in culture for a really long time, have a look back over history and see if there's defining assets that haven't been used and dig them out of the archives because I think um, there might be things that you'll be able to bring back um, mm. and bring to life these emotional connections or these yeah. connections that you have got with consumers that have laid lay dormant for, for many years. Yep, and Nutrigrain proves that it works. Oh, totally. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really great lesson in being able to go back through the history of a brand and know that there's things that really do connect with consumers um, that you can bring back and still resonate tonight. Thanks, Dan. That was great. Thank you for your insights. That was, uh, it was awesome. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks for having me. And my thanks again to Dan Bitty for being a part of this audio diary. And if you'd like help creating, maintaining, or even reviving an audio asset for your brand, please feel free to get in touch with us at Eardrum. You can email info at eardrum.com.au. Thanks for listening. And that's all for this week and indeed this year. The Mumbrella cast will be taking a break for the next couple of weeks, but we'll be back in early 2020 with all your media and marketing news. Until then... We hope you have a fabulous Christmas and we'll see you in the new year. Bye, team. Bye. Bye.